This is a Federal News Network podcast. The Senate could vote tomorrow on a $40 billion military aid package for Ukraine. It's already passed the House. Whatever happens, it will require contracts and contractors. Here with a look inside, the Executive Vice President for Policy at the Professional Services Council, Stephanie Castro. And let's start with, well, what's in that bill for contractors? Should this somehow get enacted? Good morning, Tom, and thanks for so much for having me. You know, this Ukraine supplemental bill is in addition to the $13.6 billion Ukraine supplemental that was included in the FY22 appropriations bills. What's amazing to me, unpacking this new Ukraine supplemental, the president in the White House asked for $33 billion. The House increased that amount um, when they voted last week to $40 billion. I'm curious to see what the Senate votes on. I would suspect it will be the larger package without much in the way of changing. The numbers tell me that a lot of this is going towards Ukraine Security Assistance Initiative, the USAI. That is the initiative to arm both with lethal and non-lethal weapons, Ukrainian security forces. That's about $6 billion. But there is also a larger number out there. In the House bill, there was $9 billion for replenishment of U.S. stocks, and that's to use drawdown authority to help replenish those weapons that have either been used or otherwise given to the the Ukrainians in defense of their country. So now that answers the question of where this is coming from. It is our inventories for war making that have been sent over there, and we've got to keep our own powder not only dry, but also at the levels we feel safe about. That's very true, Tom. According to some think tank estimates, we had about 20,000 javelins in stock available for use, and we are transferring them at a higher rate, much higher rate than we are producing them every year. My understanding is that we can produce 2,100 javelins per year, and we've been transferring them to Ukraine at a rate of 2,500 per month. So roughly 5,000 javelins over to Ukraine, and that is not sustainable, as you can imagine. Right. So then this money that would be in the appropriations would be acquisition money to replenish our stocks? Is that the color of money that they're talking about? My understanding is that the $9 billion is procurement money so that they can procure stingers, javelins, and other weapons that we are using or at least transferring over to Ukraine for their use. I would say that there is some operations and maintenance money involved as well, for the missiles that we are providing and that the missiles that we have in inventory. So there are two separate colors of money here, both uh, operations and maintenance and procurement. And those come with um, different reporting requirements and, and, and lead times. We're hopeful that contracts might be signed in the very near term to increase production, to get those things off the production line. You know, the president visited Alabama earlier this month and went to a production facility for javelins. Unfortunately, I, I didn't see any reporting that any contracts had been signed, and I'm hopeful that those are in the offing in the near future, as well as for stingers. Is the javelin a sole source product? At this point, it is a cooperative effort between two companies. And so my understanding is that this is the facil- this is the, the partnership that we were focusing on. The question then is that 2100 a year normally sustainable production rate the decision must be made, do we need to increase that? And then how is that possible? And it takes quite a while. I mean, if you if you if you hear some of the reports in the media, the increasing production is not exactly like you're adding just all of the inputs and all of a sudden you can bump it up at the output level. It takes years to get those production lines as hot as they need to be to get the source materials for these missiles and this equipment. Um, and I think we're going to see it take a few years to get them up um, past the, the the normal rate of production. Um, and so any any funding that can go towards that would be very helpful at this time. And these are not real big objects. I mean, it's something you could pick up. 
in your two arms. Yeah, uh, some of these are man portable and and they can be deployed. You know, and we've seen the media reports, right, of the Ukrainians using these these weapons to great effect, whether it's taking out a tank um, or or otherwise just intimidating the Russian forces. And I think at the end of the day, this is going to be a, a set of equipment that we we find real value in going forward. It's just getting those production lines going. We're speaking with Stephanie Castro, Executive Vice President for Policy at the Professional Services Council. And that's a good segue into a nominated person to become Assistant Secretary of Defense for the Supply Base and Supply Chain. There's a nomination. It's not confirmed yet. It's a whole new position. Who's nominated and what will they face if they get confirmed? That is a great question, Tom. The White House announced its intent to nominate Dr. Laura Taylor Kale for this position. Position, Assistant Secretary of Defense for Industrial Based Policy. Congress elevated this position from a Deputy Assistant Secretary position, which means the position holder needs to be confirmed by the Senate. Dr. Taylor Kale is well known to this community and had worked in the Obama administration as a, as a, a commerce official. She has focused a lot on innovation, economic dynamics. I think that will be refreshing. What I'm looking for, I mean, what community is looking for from a services contractor perspective is how well does she understand profit and loss? How well does she understand the business side of industrial-based policy? You'll recall that in February, the Pentagon put out a, a report on competition, and, and you know that's been talked about quite a bit in the media and on Capitol Hill and hearings. Um, I'm curious as to what Dr. Taylor Kale might have to say about what she thinks the level of competitiveness is within the defense industrial base. Part of that will be small businesses. And there's been a real push with the Biden-Harris administration and in DOD coming up with a small business strategy. I am very curious to see what she thinks about mid-sized companies. Those who have moved on to other than small status, I think, what does she want to see? What innovations can she see coming out of that? And I think supply chain resilience is the other thing that she might need to focus on. Um, I understand they have a new position looking specifically at supply chain resilience at the Pentagon. And we're looking forward to working with that individual. Competition begets competition. You know, this is what we're seeing, say, in the baby formula market, you know, to look at another domain for a moment, because so much of the federal spending for formula is concentrated on a one or two manufacturers, and therefore there's no incentive for people to join the competition. So it's a complicated mixture. It is a complicated mixture. I think one key differentiator, other than the obvious between baby formula and, and defense, is that the real market for equipment in defense and national security is the Department of Defense. It determines the market, whereas baby formula, you've got lots of buyers and consumers across across the spectrum and around the world. And so I think the Industrial-Based Policy Office really needs to take a good look at its role as the principal customer for defense services and defense products and figure out how to work with industry and have a, a good dialogue about how they look at the market in their different ways, you know, not necessarily profit and loss, but effectiveness. But they all, you know, we, we want to work together for the greater good. It's just understanding each other's perspectives. And when we've got something like the competition report that came out in February that sort of lays all of the blame and responsibility at the foot of defense industry without acknowledging that the Defense Department is, for all intents and purposes, the sole customer, it's a real problem. All right. Well, we'll hope if she's confirmed, she can figure that one out because it's not an easy one and nobody will be totally happy with how the answers come. And a final question. There's a movement coming in NATO, the Madrid Summit, which is the end of next month, and that could draw in some contractors also. What's interesting about the Madrid Summit, and I'm speaking as someone who used to work at U.S. NATO and um, and understanding the dynamics of, a, of an alliance that has currently, I'll say currently 30 allies in it, you know, they, they talk about what the 
horse posture will look like throughout Europe. And in speaking to my army colleagues, one question is how many brigade combat teams will be stationed in Eastern Europe, say Poland or the Baltic states, Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia in light of Russian aggression. And I think that will be on the, on the table for the Madrid summit. What I will be looking for from a, you know, services contractor perspective is what do the lines of communication look like? What are the resupply lines? What are the sustainment challenges that you might face in Poland and the Baltic states? And how can contractors contribute to that? So we'll be watching that closely. Stephanie Castro is Executive Vice President for Policy at the Professional Services Council. As always, thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to it? as a leader, and what about them inspired you? you know, I often think about this because, you know, sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most as being somebody that throughout our career has, you know, been at the highest levels and all. But, I, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, and uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League play- Baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy, his name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had a wad of tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her, I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there's so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, Uh, whether, you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment and, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village that was I think my inspiration for going on to, I hope, become the leader, um, you know, that that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood, and I and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind that that what we say and do. especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared, you know, about making sure that 
that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do, where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so, I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2, a social security administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. That was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney. But, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the Social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office. And lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, From there, I went to the Department of Defense and I found this, this career field called labor and employee relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating, Um, you know, from historical to current uh, current times. I just it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so. I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is I never really said no to anything. If people ask me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time. Cough and cold season is here. Introducing Ricola Max Throat Care, Ricola's most powerful drop yet. It's the best of Swiss nature wrapped around a powerful liquid menthol center for maximum relief from your worst cough and sore throat. Maximum nature for maximum relief. Try the new Ricola Max now. Available in the cold and cough aisle. Three.
It's in our nature. Hey, hon, what you doing with your fun? Do flowers have best friends? I don't know. Hey, look. Whoa. Some answers can only be found in nature. Discover the unsearchable. Visit discovertheforest.org to find a trail near you. Brought to you by the United States Forest Service and the Ad Council.